Stay in the know this summer with a membership to the DSR Network. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to our expanded offering of exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your podcast app of choice. Help us celebrate our five years together by becoming a member. Join now for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. We are joined today by Mark Hurtling. General Hurtling is former commanding general of the United States Army Europe and the 7th Army. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing great, David. It's great to be with you today. Real good to see you. And we are joined by David Sanger, our friend, David's White House and National Security Correspondent for the New York Times, senior writer at the New York Times, where he's been reporting for more than 38 years. I don't know how that has ended up now as a permanent part of your bio. It's not only permanent, it's outdated because this month it's 40. So, wow. wow, we have to get our producers up to date. And also, you know, who's there at the beginning, Michael Weiss, Michael Weiss is news director at New Lines Magazine, co-author of The Menace of Unreality, How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and a forthcoming book on Russian espionage. How you doing, Michael? Pretty well. Thanks for having me back. Oh, well, no, very glad to have you back. Of course, when we get, you know, you guys together, and we were going to have Rosa Brooks with us, by the way, and she had a little family emergency, couldn't join us at the last minute. But when we get you guys together, we want to talk about Ukraine. We don't think Ukraine has gotten a lot of talk, but there's a lot to talk about with regard to Ukraine, including another major commitment from the United States to Ukraine. We have now the Finland and Sweden accession to NATO moving along. And there's been some action on the ground in Ukraine. And I want to start with that. Maybe, Michael, you could give us a snapshot of where you think we are. And I'll ask Mark and David for that. And then then we'll talk a little bit about next steps. Um, I mean, I would say, by and large, the battlefield has been mostly static since the the fall of Sverdonetsk and Lysychansk and, and Donbass. Gosh, how how many weeks ago was that? Six or, or eight weeks ago. Uh, it's true that the Ukrainians have made some incremental progress in the south around the Kherson region. They've retaken, if you believe, President Zelensky upwards of a thousand settlements, which are small little communities. Nothing major, nothing 
massively strategic, but all the reporting I've done, including with Ukraine's MOD and other Western European countries that are keeping a close eye on this, suggests that they're, they are preparing for a major counteroffensive to retake Kherson, which is the first major population center that fell to the Russians at the end of February, early March. Strategically, Kherson, according to most Ukrainians, including the foreign minister, uh, Dmitry Kuleva, is more necessary for Ukraine, particularly for its economic revitalization, than is parts of Lugansk that they lost to the Russians. You get a lot of uh, commerce, maritime trade that needs to be conducted out of this port city. Um, and, you know, look, there's a lot of, shall we say, information terrain shaping about what, what is coming. Uh, I, I forget who it was in the MOD who suggested that Ukraine is building a, quote, million man army to to recapture this city. Uh, counteroffensives, as I'm sure General Hurtling will tell you, are much trickier than, you know, maintaining or, or running mobile defense to hold cities. So nobody really knows if the Ukrainians are going to be able to, to pull this off. Although, I mean, most of the analysts uh, I talk to seem to be quite bullish on this, and they think that they, they do have the capability. They certainly now have the weapon systems that they need to at least uh, really disrupt. They've already done this. They've already disrupted Russian logistics, ammunition resupply lines with the HIMARS that the United States has provided. If you take in total all the multiple launch rocket systems that have come from not just the US, but the UK, other countries, I think they've got about 25 of these platforms now, including new stocks of ammunition that were just announced yesterday. The big burning question, no pun intended, is what they're using to do things that they have hitherto not been able to do today. There were a series of, of strikes in Russian-occupied Crimea at the so-called Saki Russian Air Base. This is deep in the heart of Russian territory. It's at the southern end of the peninsula. And I mean, analysts I've been talking to and what from what I've seen on social media is the Ukrainians must have fired whatever this was, assuming they didn't use aircraft from a distance of maybe 200 kilometers away. That's a range of missile that we have not seen them use, or at least I haven't seen them use. Maybe I'm wrong about that. And it's led to all kinds of speculation as to what new goodies they may have either obtained from the West or perhaps even developed internally. Uh, it's a very engineer-heavy, innovative country, as you know, and they have managed to put into play some, some very interesting domestic or homegrown weapon systems. But the real eye, I think, is on Kherson, and by the end of the summer, early fall, the timetable suggests this is when they're going to have to really make their, their move. First of all, Mark, you may want to make a comment on this strike in Crimea, which has uh, raised some eyebrows and produced some interesting explanations from the Russians. But then also, if you would, uh, talk a little bit about this Ukrainian push towards Kherson, because that seems to be the next big potential turning point in this conflict. It, could, it certainly could be, David. And what, what I'll say, I'll, I'll address the strike in just a minute, but Michael has it about right. What, what you've seen in terms of Ukraine's army, as anticipated by other soldiers that I've talked to, the first phase of the operation was identified by a bunch of hasty attacks with an infantry-centric, technologically advanced mobile force as best as they could be uh, against really a sluggish Russian attack along nine different avenues of approach. They were overextended. We've talked about that before. As they shifted, as the Russians shifted in early April, uh, April the 2nd seems to be the start date to their 
to their activity and their, their second phase of the operation in the east, in the Donbass, the Ukrainian army has reverted to what the military would call an active defense. And truthfully, they executed it brilliantly against heavy artillery barrages, against attempts by Russia to conduct reconnaissance and force, followed by breakthrough operations. They were able to thwart it. They used terrain to their great advantage and did a very good job, although truthfully, the, the casualties on both sides were excessive, more so on the Russian side, the Ukrainian side. Now, what is happening, uh, if we focus on Kherson, which President Zelensky seemed to name a few weeks ago as the next place he wanted the Ukrainian army to focus, you know, I've, I've got a, if I'd swung my camera over here, I would show you a huge map, because if you're a military guy, you can't go anywhere without a map. But when you take a look at the at the oblast of Kherson, it is, from an operational perspective, exceedingly important. Why? Well, because it to the south, it bumps up against Crimea and it threatens Crimea. And there are about six major roads that come out of Crimea that are providing logistic support to Russia, reinforcing what's coming out of the east from Rostov on down within Russia. Number two, it traps across the Dnieper and the Bug and the Puv River to the west of Kherson Oblast, the Oblast of Mikolaev. Russia has about 25,000 soldiers estimated in that Oblast. If they are trapped to the west of Kherson, that is a significant defeat. It, you know, for World War II buffs, it would be the equivalent of a mini fillet gap or a mini fillet pocket that occurred during World War II where tens of thousands of Germans were captured. In addition to that, to the east of Kherson, you've got the province of Donetsk and Luhansk province. So again, the road's coming out of there. To the north, you have Zaporizhia. So you're talking about being the center of activity and from an operational perception, doing what Zelensky wants to do is critically important. Kherson, like Michael said, is a key economic location within Ukraine province. They cannot continue the shipment of wheat and other goods unless they control that province and the ports in Mikolaev. It is literally a strategic approach. Having said all that, can Ukraine do this? Because you go from hasty attack to deliberate defense to what will need to be a maneuver warfare with a lot of equipment. Ukraine has turned the tide with HIMARS and MLRS systems that they have. They are doing a very great job in, usually, in utilizing the type of equipment. But when you're talking about the maneuver required in Kherson Oblast, not just the city, again, I'm, I'm going to mention that Oblast, by my calculation, is about the size of the state of Maryland. The city of Kherson is about the size of half of Baltimore. So this is a pretty big area that Ukrainian forces have to move around and retake a bunch of rural cities in order to control the roads in and out of those four other oblasts that I talked about. So that's the next phase. And the last thing I'll say about that is you can't retake ground with artillery. Let me reinforce that. You know, they have been very successful using HIMARS and MLRS in the last couple of weeks. But you cannot retake ground just with artillery strikes. So they are going to have the Ukrainian army is going to have to combine a maneuver with strikeage with smart action to take care. The strike today 
was perhaps the beginning of that. It was a tactical surprise, to be sure, to the Russians to have that airbase struck. And it was struck multiple times. I know you were pushing before we started the program is what struck it. I don't know. But there is a couple of capabilities. It could have been a Neptune missile because Ukraine has said they have adapted one of their pieces of equipment to strike that base. So you're talking about a ground to sea or a ground to air missile being reconfigured to hit ground to ground. It could have been a US UAS system. It could have been, I'm not saying it was, but it could have been special operations teams conducting sabotage operations within Crimea itself and Sevastopol, where the, where the air base is. There are a few other things that it could have been, but I got to tell you, the fact that it did strike that area and cause such significant damage on an airfield that is estimated to have had about 15 or between 15 and 20 airplanes on the strip this morning before the explosion occurred tells me that it was a very good targeting exercise with good intelligence coming into the Ukrainian force. David, as we look at this, and I know you've had lots of conversations with U.S. officials about it. I've had a number myself. This move towards Kherson seems to be not only strategically important for Ukraine, but it seems to be kind of pivotal in how the United States looks at how this war unfolds. The U.S. has put in $9 billion since February for military supplies, another $4.5 billion for uh, support for Ukraine. I think there's an awareness that, you know, this can't go on necessarily indefinitely, although there's no sense that it's letting up. But when I talk to these officials, the, the response I get is, Kherson is important because it puts the Russians on their back foot. It takes the Russians away from thoughts of Odessa and Kyiv. It gives Ukrainians the upper hand. That may create an opportunity from a negotiating perspective, and it would certainly be a better way to enter the winter with Ukrainians in control of the areas that, that Mark talked about. But if they can't, then the tide of this thing looks somewhat different, and the options for Ukraine and the United States look somewhat different. How do you, how do you view it in terms of what this could all mean for the support of the West? Well, there's a lot in there, David, and let's try to unpack it piece by piece. First of all, Congress passed an additional $52 billion several months ago for Ukraine. That was a big amount. And when you're hearing the amounts that are being released now, they come out of that $52 billion. And that is also including money to support Ukraine through sometime mid-fall. And the idea was to have the United States basically support a third of the Ukrainian government budget and have the allies then step up and, and match that. We're, that's been a mixed bag so far. The good news is the $52 billion was more than the administration had even requested from Congress. The bad news for the Ukrainians is it's probably as much as they are getting because there is a bit of a fatigue that is setting in for the cost of this war. And so I think that there's an effort to impose on the Ukrainians a little bit of the discipline that says this is not limitless. You heard a lot of complaints from U.S. officials, and Mark, you, you can talk about this better than I can, that the Ukrainians were wasting a lot of ammunition, that they were doing a lot more shots than they needed 
and not thinking as hard about where they landed. So operations like today's in Crimea do make a big difference. And that takes us to your second point, which is, if you think the only end of this is a negotiated solution, then the U.S. wants to make sure that Ukraine goes into this with as much of an upper hand as they can. And that means, quite frankly, that they've got to make sure that they are beginning to take back territory and put pressure on President Putin to have to negotiate and have to negotiate not from a position of particular strength. That said, the attack on Crimea raises a really interesting question. Is the goal here right now to get the Russians out of the south and the east areas where they've settled in after the February invasion? Is the goal now to also take back what the Russians took in 2014, which I think most American officials and certainly most Europeans will tell you they think is beyond the pale of what can be accomplished? So that raises the interesting question of, did the Ukrainians tell and get approval from the U.S. to do the Crimea strike, or is this on their own, which it may well have been? One final thought here on on this. The past two or three weeks have been dominated on the international stage by the issues around uh, around Taiwan and the Chinese pressure on that. And it's pretty clear to everybody right now that what started as exercises is moving to something that will probably be more permanent. And that means that the United States is going to end up having two significant conflicts on opposite sides of the globe where there's going to be competing calls for contributions that we're going to have to build up Taiwan at a much faster pace than we have been and with different weapons than we have been. And at moments, that's going to conflict with the weapons we're already having a hard time scrounging up or producing for Ukraine. And it also tells you that Russia and China have some advantage here, even if they aren't coordinating, in stressing the system so that the U.S. feels as if it's got to feed both. And I think that may well be the dominant story uh, on these two for the next year or so, as this struggle against what President Biden refers to as autocracy versus democracy, and there are many who find that too broad, really goes on in two completely different spheres simultaneously. So, Michael, picking up on that, you know, the toll this war has taken on the Russians is, is I think, underappreciated. Yesterday, when making the announcement regarding the new allocation of funds, Undersecretary of Defense Colin Call noted that something like 70 to 80,000 Russians had been either killed or wounded in the past six months, that they've lost between three and 4,000 tanks and other armored vehicles. And, you know, there have been other stories that the squeeze of the sanctions is causing Russians to cannibalize aircraft in their, you know, commercial aircraft fleet and so on. First of all, what do you think of those assessments? Secondly, is that what you're hearing? You know, and it all goes to this issue, which comes up periodically, which is how long can Russia sustain the kind of war we're talking about? 
Yeah, no, I think all of that is is credible information. I mean, there was a study done by uh, Yale University, I forget the actual department or, or school that suggested, in fact, despite what we may think based on metrics such as the, you know, the ruble exchange rate, et cetera, sanctions have taken a pretty big bite out of the Russian economy and that this this is not sustainable in the long term. And I mean, I, you don't have to be a Kremlinologist to realize that one of Putin's long-term geopolitical goals here is, to his mind, if the war drags on and on, the unity, such as it is, especially in Europe, is going to fracture and crumble. And there's going to be rising calls for sanctions relief. He's also waiting on new elections to see who might come to the fore, particularly in the United States. And so I think his long game is one of, of, you know, he has infinite patience. He's not going anywhere. He doesn't have to answer to an electorate. Everybody else does. And winter is coming. The price of gas is going to rise, in, particularly in Central European countries that rely heavily on Russian energy, I think now much to their chagrin. But that said, look, you know, there are the kind of other factors here, including I would call them even metaphysical ones about, you know, where is he getting the manpower to fuel this war machine? Conscription or, you know, mass call up is not in the cards. It's hugely unpopular in Russia, even though the latest poll I, I saw suggested 52 percent of the population agrees with continuing the war, even though I would caveat that heavily, given the way polls are conducted, even amongst independent pollsters in Russia. But where's he getting the soldiers? I mean, every day I see on Telegram or I see intercepts that the SBU, Ukraine's domestic security service have published, which turn out to be credible, showing that Russians in combat feel completely demoralized. They think that they've been sold a bill of goods. They're astounded at Ukrainian resolve and resiliency and ferocity. And they're calling home to their wives and the girlfriends and mothers saying, this whole thing is a pig's breakfast. Get me out of here. So he does have a long-term problem. I mean, I, I, I don't really have an opinion or judgment to make on the longer the war drags out, which side does it ultimately benefit? I mean, obviously, Ukraine's economy is being held afloat by a kind of Marshall Plan in all but name coming from the West. This is one of the reasons, as Mark pointed out, you know, the liberation of Kherson matters so greatly. That will put take some pressure off the Black Sea Fleet blockade. You're beginning to see now these deals orchestrated by Turkey and other intermediaries for dispatching grain from Ukraine, which is having a huge impact, particularly on African countries that rely heavily on this so that they don't starve to death. Yeah, there's a there's a great deal of of concern that Putin can ride this out a little bit more adroitly than Zelensky. But then again, look, should the Ukrainians be successful and recapture a major city? That I think, forget strategically and, and forget just in terms of the, the raw numbers. Symbolically, that is a real hammer blow to Putin. And whatever the long game that the, the Biden administration is playing here, you know, let's go to the negotiating table with as much leverage as we can. Or, I mean, Lloyd Austin made this comment, which I didn't see as particularly illogical or immoral, but it was now characterized as some kind of gaffe and reportedly Biden himself was very down on him for it, that the objective of the United States is and ought to be ensure that Russia cannot do something like this again in the short to midterm. And that means essentially a war of attrition, but that really you know makes one side suffer and lose much more than the other. You know, Ukraine, keep in mind, 20% of its territory is currently occupied by Russia. That's a lot more than I think the 8% that Russia occupied as of February 23. So Ukraine really does have to recapture some land if it plans to have some kind of parlay with Putin that suggests 
now we get to dictate the terms. And just one other final point here, and this is, I think, very especially important to remember. Estonia's Prime Minister uh, Kaya Kallas told me this in Tallinn a few weeks ago. Timothy Snyder wrote a very good essay about it even earlier than that. This idea about Putin and his need for off-ramps or face-saving maneuvers or gestures, I think this is one of the biggest, most self-destructive myths that we can tell ourselves. He runs, as, as Professor Snyder would put it, a virtual reality, largely controlled by state broadcasting television, whereby if he decides tomorrow, I'm going to declare victory, even though it's really defeat, and I'm going to sell it to my people, he can do that. He can pull every last Russian soldier out of Ukraine and dress it up as you know, a, a kind of May Day style celebration of triumphalism, if he so chose. So I think the West has to keep that in mind and in, in sort of coming up with a grand strategy of what it, it plans to do going forward. But as David pointed out, I mean, it's not just about Ukraine and Europe. We've got China, we've got Taiwan, we've got other considerations in the Asia Pacific. And yeah, I mean, keeping this war going is a drain on American taxpayer dollars, on our own armaments and stockpiles. I mean, so the big question is how long and, and up to what point? And I don't think anybody has a coherent answer about that. Well, that is an excellent question. I want to turn to Mark with uh, that question in a moment. I do want to say that this is the point where we normally take a little break and we say goodbye to everybody from the general public and say that if you want to listen to the rest of this podcast, just like any other podcast, you got to become a member. So you go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership and pay five bucks a month and get tons and tons of bonus content and other benefits and also support what we're doing, conversations like this that go into real depth, much more depth than you can find in other places. So we encourage you to do that. For those of you in the public, thanks a lot for coming. Come back next week or better yet, become members. And for members, stand by. This is Kavita Patel, co-host of the Words Matter podcast. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I talk about the issues facing our country as we head into the midterms and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. In a world filled with alternative facts and fake news, we try to cut through the noise to bring you the facts about issues like the Supreme Court. We've got the votes and screw the rest of you. Reproductive rights. What a failure of our system. What a failure. COVID. We had a million people or more who died, more than we've seen in our wars. And it's like it shrugged off. Subscribe today to get our latest episode and join us each Friday to get our latest analysis. See you then.